Hi there, travelers. I'm Riley. I'm Angelica. I'm Isabella. And this is the second part of a True Crime International two-parter. So we're going to the same place today, so we don't need to, you know, describe that. Um, but I don't have to ask have... you where we're going? No. <laughs> no, but... technically we're going to two places today, not just okay. Aruba. Fine, but that's a secret. Not really, but it's part of the story, so we're not going to reveal it. Um, if you have not listened to the first part of this series, stop here and go back and listen to that one because it's gonna make no sense if you don't you'll get the whole picture you won't be confused because i'm also just gonna jump right back in so this is your one and only warning this is this is our episode where we're really gonna rage on you're on vandersloot mm-hmm. so we mentioned at the very end of the last case or the last episode that the case was officially closed in 2007 but in early 2008 Peter R. DeVries, a Dutch crime reporter, announced that he was making a special TV program about the Natalie Holloway case. And he claimed that he had solved it. A big claim. He's like, I did it. I did it, y'all. A I bold did it. claim. But you gonna have to watch my show. To be honest, you can't just fucking do that, dude. No. I wonder what the media laws are in the Netherlands, though. Because like in the US, I'm sure you wouldn't be able to say, oh, I solved it. I right? definitely meant more ethically. Than legally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ethically, it's wrong everywhere, but yeah. I'm, I'm still curious about the media laws. On February 1st, the Dutch media reported that Joran had made a confession on the show, but later that same day, Joran made a statement and said that he was only telling them what they wanted to hear and then denied having any involvement in her disappearance. And then later, later that day, the Aruban prosecutor's office announced that they would be reopening Ma- Natalie's case. So a lot happened on February 1st. The TV program aired on February 3rd, 2008, and in it there was footage from hidden cameras and microphones in the car of a man whose name is Patrick van der Eem, who was a Dutch businessman and ex-convict. And this man had earned Joran's trust some way, somehow, I don't know why. I think because because uh, that guy had been successful, mm-hmm. Euron wanted to impress him. Yeah. Because Euron, you have to remember, like, Euron, this is 2008, so at this point he's, like, what, 20? Yeah. Yeah, he's roughly 20 years old. Like, he's still just figuring his shit out and, like, what he wants to do with life. And he just wants, he just wants money so he can spend his time drinking and having sex. And I think he saw that potential in Patrick. Yeah. Like if he would do something like what Patrick did. Um, so he's like, oh, I got to I gotta impress this guy. I mean, that's a great way to spend your life, but not the way he's doing it. He's a nope. fucking asshole. Yeah. So there was footage of Yoran smoking weed. And during the conversation, he said that he was with Natalie on the night that she disappeared. And that she began convulsively shaking and then she became unresponsive. He claimed that he had tried to revive and resuscitate her, but he was unsuccessful, so he called a friend, and this friend told him to go home, and then the friend disposed of the body. 
And also, I just want to mention, I hate that term when talking about human human beings, like disposing. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. But that's what he said. What kind of friend? What kind right? of friend is like, oh, you're with a girl on the beach and she just died. Okay, well, you go home. You go you home. You go home I'll and I'll take, take care, care of this. Like, yeah, this no problem whatsoever. Such a completely new and random, like, scheme of events. Like. Yeah. What? Right. And so the police obviously contacted his friend, and the friend completely denied Joran's story and said that he was in Rotterdam, which is in the Netherlands, at the time of Natalie's disappearance. Like, he was in school there. He's like, you want you want me to be involved in this story? No, actually. No, sorry, I was at Absolutely school. Absolutely not. I wonder, like, this is just pure speculation on my part, but I wonder if, like, because at this point, Joran is back in the Netherlands, so I wonder if... um. Maybe they'd recently gotten into a fight, and so Euron was just looking for a way to disparage his friend. Yeah, probably. Because obviously Euron didn't realize he was being recorded. No. Authorities also tried to get an arrest warrant for Euron based on these tapes, but the judge denied it because the statements on the tapes were inconsistent with the evidence in the case, and it wasn't enough to hold Euron. Which, fine, whatever. Euron also met with investigators in the Netherlands and denied everything that he said on the tape, saying that he was under the influence of marijuana. But, like, th- it doesn't, that does not make you make up stories. Like, come on. Side effects may include making up lying, completely random stories about something huge. Like, what? I think he's just trying to put the blame on someone else. Yeah, I always find it so hilarious whenever people blame weed for just, like, for things that weed just doesn't make you do. Literally. Exactly. And he does it later on again, too. So just keep yeah. that in mind. It's like, look, weed weed can, weed can, has different effects on everybody. But for the most part, uh, depending on what strain you smoke, it either mellows you out or like it makes your mind wander quite a bit. But it's not going to make you do anything crazy. Like you're not going to completely lose all of your inhibitions. No. That's and not, I just that's think not how that weed works. I think that he's saying anything to try and confuse people and the authorities so that like no one can figure out what the real story is because that's what he is essentially doing. And now this like second option of confusing people holds true when in November he does an interview with Fox News. Sorry, in November of that same year, and he says that he sold Natalie into sex slavery. And that he was paid when she was taken, and he was also paid later on in exchange for his silence. He also said that his father had paid off two police officers who knew that Natalie was taken to Venezuela for, you know, sex slavery purposes. But guess what? Shortly after the interview aired, he retracted those statements as well. Surprise, surprise. He's fucking over his dad in that statement as well. And also, I'm I'm just saying... He was 17 at this time. I really, like, this is just not plausible. No. No. Fuck. Uh. And I mean, there is a big trafficking issue in Aruba because of its popularity with American tourists and its proximity to Venezuela. Like, it's, it's very easy to get things to and from Aruba to different countries, you know? Um, and, but I think he's just really, I, I don't believe this. No. I don't believe this one for no, a second. No, me either. It's not impossible, but knowing Euron at this point, no, there's no way. This one is not true. And also, if he was working with people in, the, in that industry, I feel like there would be evidence of this happening before. 
because this was his thing. Like, he went to bars, picked up girls every night. If he was doing this, it would have happened more than just this one time. Unless Natalie was the first one. Like, maybe yeah, he had picked up other girls, uh, but they didn't fit the description. Or, like, uh, they had gone home. Or it could be a million things. But maybe Natalie was, like, his first success. Yeah. In March of 2009, Natalie's dad, Dave Holloway, brought a search dog to the island. And he wanted to search a small reservoir that a previous witness had identified as possibly being a place where Natalie's remains were. Um, And I don't think anything really came of this search, but I still wanted to point out that it did happen. He did come down with a search dog. Nothing has come from any searches. Yeah. Mm -mm. Nothing. Then almost a year later, Joran has yet again another story, and this time it's that he disposed of Natalie's body in a marsh on Aruba, but authorities dismissed it because they said that the locations, names, and times he gave just didn't make sense. Which, yeah, they they probably didn't, but maybe look into it a little bit? I don't know. It's hard to, like, be critical of it. Yeah. So, another month later in March, um, underwater searches were conducted when an American couple claimed that while they were snorkeling, they thought they had photographed human remains, but no remains were ever recovered from the search. Then later in that same month of March, Joran continues to be a shitty freaking person. Um, He said that, right, he said that for $250,000, he will reveal the location of Natalie's body and the circumstances surrounding her death. But he also has to be given an advance of $25,000 before he'll do that. So unfortunately, authorities agree to it, and he is wired $15,000 and is given $10,000 in cash. But of course, to no one's surprise, the information that he gave was a lie because the house where he said Natalie's body was wasn't even built yet when she disappeared. Did he get to keep that money? I don't think so, because the U.S. District Court of Northern Alabama charged Yoren with extortion and wire fraud. Well, that's good. And this helped authorities. It's it's such explicit extortion. I know. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And this... um, this whole extortion thing actually helped authorities obtain a search warrant for two properties, which helped them form new searches. But again, nothing came of the searches. Um, but thankfully, though, Yoren was indicted on June 30th for the charges of extortion and wire fraud. So then on the fifth anniversary of Natalie's death, which is pretty eerie, um, a woman named Stephanie Tatiana Flores Ramirez died at the Hotel TAC. TAC in Lima, Peru. And this was on May 30th of 2010. Her body wasn't actually discovered until June 2nd, following her being reported missing by her family. Um, she had been really badly beaten, and later the autopsy would reveal that she suffered blunt force trauma to her head, which caused hemorrhaging in her brain, and there was a cranial fracture as well as some signs of asphyxiation. So, like, she really went through it, which is horrible. Yeah. Those yeah, sound like, like horrible, horrible ways to die. I just Those can't are even horrible injuries. Like, that, she was horribly beaten. Like, yeah. so painfully beaten. 
There weren't signs of sexual assault, but there were some amphetamines in her system. And while there's no way to know if she took them willingly, the police had found date rape, dr- date rape drugs in her car. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, Stephanie was a 21-year-old student attending the University of Columbia, and she was really close to graduating, which just, ugh, that's awful. I feel so bad. So... In a lot of places, whenever I've heard about this part of the story, I've always seen Stephanie called a a prostitute, that she was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And it's just so blatantly untrue. It's not true at all. This is not to shit on prostitutes. I I do not care. No. Sex work is still work. But it's just, I hate the lying because a lot of people will judge for that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And she's actually from a rich family. Yeah. And she wanted to be a professional poker player. She really enjoyed playing poker and was really good at it. So whoever whoever out there wrote, has written that she was a prostitute, you can go fuck yourself. Agreed. It's just a way of being reductive, like attempting at being reductive. Because yeah. first of all, it shouldn't be reductive. No. And just it's also making her less of a priority than say natalie and that shouldn't be the case because she is a victim she was murdered awfully like it's awful so eh. if she had looked like natalie and had the same background as natalie which actually her background is truly not that different she's just from peru not from the u.s but i think if uh, she had been white, basically. The the yeah. treatment of her in the in the media would have been very different. Yeah, a hundred percent. Unfortunately, um, as made clear by footage and others at the hotel, as well as the fact that her body had been found in a room registered under his name, Stephanie had crossed paths with none other than Joran Vandersloot. Fuck you. Yep. He really went to Peru because that was like. One of the few places in the world at that time he wouldn't have been recognized. Yeah. So as it turns out, they had met at an Atlantic City casino, also in Lima, because they'd been playing cards at the same table, which is very like, he met Natalie at a, con- a casino too. The Yeah. The similarities are just very eerie. Just because that's all he does with his time mm-hmm. is like spend money that's usually not his. Yep. And like try to get with girls and then do shitty stuff but it's just the fact that it was both of them like he met both of them at casinos and it happened on the same right yeah right and that the the women have similar backgrounds like yeah natalie was about to um attend university and stephanie was in university they both came from rich families (sighs) you know yeah also, it's important to mention that Joran had come to Peru to attend the Latin American Poker Tour, which would begin on June 2nd, but he had not registered or paid for it yet, and the deadline was May 30th, but I'm guessing his luck just wasn't happening. But Stephanie, on the other hand, had been really lucky as she'd already won $10,000 and then some more later on. That's something I can't even hope for. Yep. They met at the table around 3 a.m., and then the hotel's cameras show them entering the hotel together at 5 a.m. Joran is seen leaving and returning with two cups of coffee at around 8.10, and then he leaves with his bags alone at 8.45. 
Also, I mentioned that the police had found date rate drug, date rate, oh my gosh, date rape drugs in her car. And what was, what was also alarming was that they hadn't found any like IDs and no money, which obviously like she should have had both. Especially seeing as she like fucking won ten thousand dollars the night before, before yeah. And yeah. then some, and like, also ten thousand dollars is a lot of money, period. But in yeah. Peru, yeah. yeah, in Peru, damn. Like she would have had, like she would have had that in her car or on her person. Yeah, all of those things. Mm-hmm. They had actually suspected Yoran before Stephanie's body was even found because they had already gotten access to the footage after reporting, after, like, she was reported missing. So they had seen Yoran with her. And, like, an hour before she was found, her sister-in-law did a Google search on Yoran and found out who he was. And I cannot even imagine how heart-wrenching that had to be because she, like, discovering that probably made them lose so much hope that she was alive. Yeah. Like, that's real fucked up. Imagine if I, like, you didn't know where I was. You had reported me missing. And then the police were like, oh, she was last seen with this guy. You look up that guy's name and he is already involved in a different murder investigation or, like, disappearance investigation. Yeah. <sighs> Since Yoran was literally the only suspect they had, an international arrest warrant was placed on him because they thought they had fled that. They thought that he had fled to Chile, which, yeah, he did. <laughs> I mean, good on them. Um, he probably had intended to return to Aruba because he had asked an ex for money for a plane ticket, which is confusing to me because I'm like kind of assuming that he had all the money that Stephanie had won because it wasn't found with her. Like, did he not have the ten thousand dollars? I I really that's weird. Right? So weird as hell. I know that he paid a driver to take him to Chile because he didn't have like a flight or anything. He had to just cross the, the in order to like not draw suspicion, he had to just cross the border normally. Yeah. And I think he had given quite a bit of the money to the, the driver. driver. But he didn't have enough and he had to end up giving up like his watch and some other things that he had on him. Jesus. Anyways. He was spotted in Chile and then arrested. He literally had bloody clothes on him, and he tried to say that he and Stephanie had been victims of an armed robbery, and they had killed Stephanie because she wouldn't stay silent, which, like, why would you leave? And why would they leave you? I don't know. It, also, like, why it would you go to literally another country? Yeah. Why wouldn't you, like, report it? And um, his SIM Wouldn't card Wouldn't someone was... in a hotel hear it as well? Like, come on. Yeah. And This is not the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles. Like, fuck off. And his SIM card from his phone was also gone, so they couldn't track him. A year later, when they accessed his hard drive, um, he had been doing searches regarding the relationships between Chile and Peru. So he literally, like, just looks guilty. Like, he was probably searching, like... If you commit a crime in Peru, can they charge you in Chile? <laughs> like, yeah, he's like, uh, is there extradition? <laughs> exactly. But he was sent back to Peru anyways, and he was arrested by their authorities. Um, so then on June seventh of two thousand ten, that's my birthday. Yep. Um. Also, um, this was like at the same time. This was happening at the same time that the U.S. government was, like, doing searches 
and had warrants and was like charging him with the extortion stuff. Just so good old double whammy. He's really just going down for it. Yep. So Yoran reportedly made a confession after hours of interrogation, but it seemed to them like his confession was a strategy to get charged with manslaughter instead of murder, aka like get less prison time. His written confession stated that he briefly left the hotel to go get some coffee and bread and then returned to find Stephanie using his laptop, even though he hadn't given her permission to use his laptop. Um, Authorities think that he or that she might have found information that linked him to Natalie's case and then an altercation began and she tried to escape. Joran said, I did not want to do it. The girl intruded into my private life. She didn't have any right. I went to her and I hit her. She was scared. We argued and she tried to escape. I grabbed her by the neck and I hit her. End quote. He always trying to blame the victim. Exactly. He's, he's like, she made me do it. Mm-hmm. It's not like he just hit her. He beat her to death. Yeah. Oh, and you're going to love this next part. He also said that he was stoned on marijuana at the time. Which, again, is not an excuse for your actions. We does not make you violent. Yes, especially not violent actions. If it were cocaine, meth, I could (laughs) buy it. Maybe, but not weed. But not weed. People are so mellow on weed. Yeah. That's why you smoke it. Relaxes you. A detective that was working on the case said that Yoren considered trying to get rid of the body in a suitcase... But he knew that he would probably be stopped by the front desk if he walked out with a suitcase. And, like, he wasn't trying to, like, prolong, like, standing there in the lobby with a body in a suitcase. So instead, he drank some espresso and took amphetamines to counter the fatigue of the weed. And then he fled. Oh, my God. This is what he said. So, wait. So the weed made him violent and sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> Same time. Apparently. Apparently. It ha- happens happens to me, too. Yeah. But, like, the authorities knew that his confession wasn't truthful truthful or accurate because his toxicology report showed no drugs in his system. Yeah, he was tired because yeah. he had literally beat someone to death. Like, which, I mean, was good for them that there was no drugs in his system because crimes committed under the influence of drugs can sometimes get leniency in Peru, especially mm, and amphetamines. he knew that. Yeah, and he, he 100% knew, knew that. Um. And they, they also, I just want to say, they also thought that his motive was robbery. Not like, you know, she found something that it wasn't supposed to. Um, because she had just made $10,000. Yeah, that, that makes no sense to me. Because why make yourself look more guilty uh-huh. in another case? So also, stupid. He's so stupid. I'm just like, what are the chances that she just happens upon some sketchy information Like, why would you laptop? just have that on your laptop? Yeah. Did did you just leave that open? Did you leave that tab open? Exactly. So in a later prison cell interview, Yoren retracted his confession. (laughs) Once again, surprise. Claiming that he had been coerced and tricked by police um, with a promise to be transferred to the Netherlands. He also said that when he signed the confession documents, he didn't really know what they said because they were all in Spanish. And also um, in this interview, he said that He was actually framed by another gambler named Elton Garcia, who lured him to Peru to frame him. Fuck off. 
Right. Get out Fuck of here. Off. And actually, Yorin's lawyer at the time stated that he wanted to resign from Yorin's case because it was causing like way too many problems for him. But he stayed long enough to file a motion to void the confession on the grounds that Yorin was not properly represented during his interrogation. But this motion was denied, um, and it was stated that he was actually represented by a state-appointed lawyer, and he had a translator there. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> then on June 11th of 2010, it was ordered that Yorin be held on charges of first-degree murder and robbery, determining that he acted with, quote, ferocity and great cruelty, unquote. Peruvian law stated that he was not able to be released on bail, thank God, because we all know that he would be out of there. And instead of being tried by a jury, he would be tried by a panel of three judges and a simple majority was needed for conviction. Exactly seven months later, after they, you know, said that he was going to be held on charges, Jorn pled guilty to the qualified murder and simple robbery of Stephanie. He was convicted and sentenced to 28 years in prison, and he was also ordered to pay her family $75,000. He is currently in a high-security prison in the mountains of Peru, and his release date is... Wait. His release date, as of right now, is June 10th, 2038. So, he wasn't originally put into a high-security prison. He was just in, like, a regular prison. Um, and then I think he tried to, like, beat up a guard. No, he was put something. He was put in a high security prison at first and then they moved him to this other high security prison in the mountains. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. The one in the mountains is so notoriously dangerous. It's like way up in the Andes yeah. and they have because like, of like the climate the and stuff. <laughs> that altitude, man. Yeah, I know. If the weed if the weed makes you violent, imagine what the altitude will do. Yep. I mean, in twenty fourteen, he also like I read he he got married and he has a child. Yeah. Which is like, it's why? wild. Why and he the also fuck? his wife at one point also tried to say that he got like stabbed and beat up in prison, and they were like, no, he didn't. <laughs> I just, I, I also, I don't really, I just don't get it because if it's a high security prison, she was like a saleswoman that came to the prison. Why? How did they have sex? And well, how I did think they have I think sex? if you get married in prison, I think if you get married in prison, they have to let you consummate it. No. They got married seven when she was seven months pregnant. Oh. So, with his well, child. Well, probably, like, paid so, off the guards. But, like, I, I'm just, I don't get it. Don't, I don't, don't marry I don't get people it either. that have murdered um, people. Yeah. And I also just want to make it clear that we also covered Stephanie's story because she obviously was a victim of this absolute dickhole. And it is the reason why he is thankfully in prison right now. So I just want to make that clear. But going back to June of 2011, which was six years after Natalie's disappearance, her dad filed. Well, sorry, sorry, sorry. Before you, um, before you can, before you say that part, uh, he is in prison right now in Peru. He's still facing those extortion charges in the United States. Yep. So upon his release from the Peruvian prison, he has to come to the United States. To face those charges. I would prefer him not to be in the United States. <laughs> yeah, but but also if it means he gets even more time in prison. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm cool exactly. with that. So then in June of 2011, which was six years after Natalie's disappearance, her dad filed a petition with the Alabama courts 
to have Natalie legally declared dead. Her mom wanted to, like, fight this, and she was um, really opposed to the petition, but it was ruled that Dave had met the requirements for a legal presumption of death. And on January 12, 2012, Natalie was officially declared dead. I know that um, Natalie's dad just wanted to do it so that way they could essentially, like, close out her estate and be Mm -hmm. able to use the money they had for her university and give it to her brother and that sort of thing. Like, I understand why I understand why he wanted to do it. And I also understand why Natalie's mom didn't want to do it. Yeah. Well, it's hard because you don't want to believe that, like, your daughter's dead. But yeah. And Beth doesn't. She doesn't believe that she's dead. Yeah. So I also want to end this with talking about the Oxygen documentary that was done about Natalie's case. It was done back in 2017, and I started watching it before I even really knew anything about it, like before I knew as much as I know about this case. But I had to stop watching it like 20 minutes into the first episode. There are six episodes because, I don't know, it just seemed really scripted and fake to me. For the documentary, Dave Holloway worked with a PI named TJ Ward to kind of go through all of the evidence one more time to see if anything new popped up and like stuck out to them and something did they met a man named gabriel who claimed to be the former roommate of one of yoren's best friends named john ludwig back in 2005 when all of this happened gabriel claimed that john knew what happened to natalie in the documentary gabriel secretly recorded conversations with ludwig and captured a confession quote Ludwig was then interviewed by the PI and claimed that the night Natalie disappeared, Yorin had laced her drink with a date rape drug and that Natalie had accidentally OD'd and choked to death on her own vomit. Panicked, Yorin called his father, who helped him bury the body under a house that was near the Holiday Inn. Ludwig claimed that in 2010, Yorin was scared that investigators were getting close to uncovering the truth, so he asked Ludwig to help him dispose of the remains for $1,500. $1,500. No. That's not enough money. Absolutely not. Like, first of all, don't don't do it. (sighs) Yeah. But second of all, that's not enough money for that kind of service. If your friend asks you to help dispose of remains for $1,500, you take the $1,500, and then you go to police and say, my friend is asking me to help him get rid of these remains. Yeah. Literally. Here's the money he paid me. Also, ask for a receipt. Yep. So, Ludwig claimed that they dug up the remains and crushed them down to a point where they would be unrecognizable and burned the skull to get rid of any hair fibers that might still be hanging on. Then, Ludwig put the bones into a bag with some dog bones and took it to a local crematory where he asked if he could cremate the bones of his beloved dog in privacy. Ludwig and Joran then went out on a boat and scattered the ashes into the sea. This, this, this yeah, it's just, it, I don't well, know. First of all, first of all, you don't think when this happened, they were teenage boys. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't think that the two guys that were actually there with him would throw some rando under the bus. Like, why wouldn't they have done that if there was someone else? Exactly. Involved? Also, she had friends with her. They met all these people. Like, stupid. This is false. Yeah. So the documentary commissioned an excavation of the site where Ludwig had claimed that they dug up the body from. 
and they had found bone fragments. They sent the fragments off for DNA testing, and Beth Holloway agreed to provide a saliva sample for the testing. However, she wasn't informed that all of this was being filmed for a TV documentary. They did not tell her that. The bone fragments were tested, and only one of them tested positive for human mitochondrial DNA, but it didn't match Natalie, so they basically got absolutely nowhere. Beth was absolutely furious about this, like rightfully so, because they didn't tell her that it was for a TV documentary. And so she sued the producers for $20 million in compensatory damages and $30 million in punitive damages in February of 2018, claiming that they knew this was not a legitimate real-time investigation and that she had been duped into giving the sample without being informed that it was being filmed. She says that it was all pre-planned and that they knew the bones weren't going to be a match, but that they kept it to themselves in order to boost their own ratings. The trial was set for September of 2020, but I'm pretty sure it's been delayed just because of COVID. I mean, there's not really anything else that, to my knowledge, could have delayed it. But um, maybe once they do the trial and they go through with the trial, we'll do like a small update episode because I think that would be nice of us for do, nice of us to do. Also, Ludwig was killed in March 2018. He was stabbed to death by a woman he tried to kidnap. And the woman was not charged with any crimes. Good. But he was charged with trying to kidnap someone. I don't doubt that he hung out with other people that also tried to kidnap people. Yeah. Like, I I really think he just wanted clout by being on that show. Like... I see why he and Euron were friends, though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. But I just... And I think he could probably... Like, he might actually know what happened to Natalie and where she is. Mm-hmm. But... I don't think he was involved in the way that he claimed to be involved. No. So that woman that he tried to kidnap ended up going on the Dr. Phil show and said that Ludwig had told her that Natalie had died on the beach that night and that Joran's father had helped him bury the body, which is also what Joran, or not Joran, Ludwig had told police, but obviously that story didn't pan out. Um, That was one of Joran's stories, right? Yeah, like at this point... I, I definitely think they ended up on the beach somehow, some way, but whatever happened on the beach or and after, we'll never know the truth, yeah. honestly. I think all the stories apart are complete fucking bullshit, but, yeah. like, I think in each one, there's a piece of the truth, yeah. which is just, yeah. like, oh, because these guys are fucking dicks, we're not going to know. But then at the same time, like, I'm never going to believe anything Euron says. Yeah. There were um, fishermen on the beach at the time that Euron said that he was on the beach, like, at the spot that he said he was. And those fishermen said that they never saw a girl with them. So, I don't know. It's still very, very yeah, but fishy, they, for lack of She could have term. already died and they yeah, could have exactly. already, you know. Um. That's kind of the end. There's not really much else to say about this case. This is where it all dries up. Um, Both of Natalie's parents have released books about their experiences and the case itself, and Beth's became a New York Times bestseller. Um, Beth also hosted a show called Vanished with Beth Holloway on Lifetime, where they covered unsolved missing persons cases, but it only lasted for one season. So that's kind of the last update that we have. And like I said, if there's another update after her um, 
not her trial, but like you know, the trial that she's I mean going for that through. that one, it's just for suing. Like, I don't know if it's worth doing a full episode, but we'll definitely update like on our social media and stuff. No, I I mean just like a small update, like maybe like a little bonus. If you yeah, okay. want to see photos from this case and if you want to chat with us about this case, which I think there's definitely a lot to chat about. There's a lot of theories. Hit us up on our social medias. You can find us at, at True Crime INTL on Instagram and you can find us by searching True Crime International on Facebook. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying our show, we would love it if you could give us a five-star review because it really helps boost our ratings and even leave us a little note in your little review comment. We would love it. Um, if you love our show and if you want more content every month, we have a Patreon that has one level. It's $5 a month if you have that money to spend. Um, we would love to have you there. You get three bonus pieces of content. Um, and it's really fun. And we love having people there. So other than that... Uh, we hope that you've learned something new today. And we hope you've enjoyed your stay here at True Crime International. Bye. 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 Bye.